John chapter 15, verses 1 through 12, and I'm going to be reading out of the English Standard Version. These are the words of Jesus on the night before he was crucified. He said, I am the vine, excuse me, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit itself, by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love hath no man than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You can be seated. Let's pray to the Lord for get together. Father in heaven, we, we come before you as your people, and we ask that you would take this text and take these words and that you would powerfully speak them into our hearts, into our lives, into our marriages, into our family, into this church, into this community. Father, we are yours and we're here for a purpose, and that is to bear fruit. And we pray that as a result of being here this morning, worshiping you, praying to you, and hearing you speak to us, we pray that you would enable us to bear more fruit as your people to the honor and glory of, of your grace and your goodness. Give us ears to hear, hearts to understand. I pray for those who don't really know you and have no relationship with you this morning who are here. I pray that they would sense the truth in these words and they would sense the need to believe these words uh, because Jesus is the fountain spring, the, the center of life um, and life eternal. So be with us this morning, Holy Spirit, and uh, move as you will in Christ's name. One of the uh, remarkable facets of creation, if you take time to, to stop and think about it, um, is that God has built in to every living thing the capacity to multiply. Uh, every living thing has this capacity to multiply. Uh, you take, for example, I'm doing a reading yesterday, um, a pomegranate. I have a pomegranate tree in my yard. And uh, you take a pomegranate, and they say that in that single piece of fruit, is anywhere between 200 to 1,400 seeds. Now, I don't know who figured that out, you know, one, two, to 1,400 seeds possible. And each of those seeds has the capacity, if, if germinated in the ground, to grow a tree upon which multiple fruits, each of which contain either 200 to 1,400 seeds capable of replicating another tree of producing fruit 
with seeds or fruit with seeds of two to 1,400. And, and not just one time, but annually, just continue to provide fruit. You just realize multiplication is built in to every living thing. Whether you're a dandelion, you're a dog, or a cat, or a human being. My grandmother was the last of 14 kids. That's multiplication, if you know what I mean. Um, God designed creation with this intrinsic quality of multiplication. As much as we may have hate, hated arithmetic growing up, um, God built multiplication into the fabric of his creation. Everything multiplies and expands. And the way God created, of course, is that it would multiply and expand in goodness and love and beauty and, and to envelop the entire earth. That's, that's part of the quality, uh, the principle, the, the intrinsic nature in which he created all living things to multiply, expand, and to, to fill the earth. Pretty remarkable, actually. Um, in fact, he mandated it, what he created. Be fruitful and multiply to Adam and Eve. The whole of creation was to be like this bubbling forth of life and love and goodness. Of course, it doesn't look that way now because uh, once sin entered into our DNA and into the fabric of our humanness, um, well, then another thing started to multiply, and that is evil. Uh, evil and suffering and sorrow and sin and conflict and divorce and war and all of those things multiplied to the subtraction of goodness to the subtraction of love, the subtraction of life. And the whole story of the Bible is about God taking ownership of his fallen creation and to replant a seed um, that would multiply once again that life and that love and that goodness, a seed that would, uh, that would bring about redemption and recreation and renovation life. That's, that's the whole story of the Bible. And one of the pieces of that story is, is this history of a people called the people of Israel. Um, still exists today, which is a remarkable miracle. But one of the things that God designed for the people of Israel was that they would become like a seed or a plant, uh, a vine in fact, a vine out of which life would spring. And you have throughout the Old Testament the people of Israel referred to as a vine or God's vineyard. So you have statements like this out of Psalm 80, where the psalmist writes, you brought a vine out of Egypt, and that's a reference to God bringing his people Israel out of Egypt, you know, Moses is the head. You drove out the nations and planted it, that is the vine, you cleared the ground for it, it's God does all kinds of things to get this vine to grow. Um, it took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade. The mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its roots to the rivers. The idea of this expansive vine that grows out. That's the people of Israel. The problem, of course, is the heart was still sinful. And you read the whole history of Israel, you realize it is a, it is a, a sad story of a broken vine that just multiplies evil. Because the heart had never been changed. Now, it's not as if God made a mistake and said, well, Israel screwed up. I have to do something different. Actually, it was God's way of saying, you know what? Um, life, redemption, um, change, transformation ultimately can't come from earth. And it can't come from humanity. The prophets looked at the people of Israel and, and, and said this. Um, one example, you can read it in Isaiah chapter 5 and verse 8 and also Jeremiah chapter 8 and verse 13. When I would gather them, that is my people, declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine. 
That is, here is this vine, the people of Israel, intended to be a spring of life. And in fact, all they produce is either rotten fruit or just completely fruitless. Now, given that background, you perhaps can understand um, the significance and the power of the words of Jesus when he arrived onto the scene, lived his life, and on the night before he was crucified, said these words. He said, and I put them in bold so you could feel it maybe. He said, I am the true vine. He goes, I, I am the source and the center of life that doesn't come from earth, but I came from heaven to establish life. So the life might multiply in blessing and goodness and restore life and love that he is the true vine. And in saying this, he's declaring to us and to the people of Jerusalem who thought they were the vine, but they were a sick and fruitless vine, that in fact there is life found in one place, and that is in Christ. And that's what he's saying. This is, I am the source. Now he uses this analogy of vine and branches and fruit that we just, we just read to teach us about himself, to teach us about us, and to teach us the goal for us as his followers and the means to getting there. That is, he talks about the source and the goal and the means in using this example of vine and branches and fruit. The source, of course, and we've talked about this a lot as we've gone through the I am statements, is simply to say that Jesus is the source of all true restoration, new creation life. It's as if God reached down into this dark and desolate, colorless place we call earth. And he planted a, a beautiful green vine. And that vine began to grow. And that vine would multiply and fill the earth with God's goodness and life and love and restoration. And that person is Christ. All, all of the New Testament points to that simple fact. There is life found nowhere else. And yet we find we just our, the stories all around us of the people who live around us are stories of people in search of life anywhere but here. Now, wh one of my favorite actors, uh, Robin Williams, is a little bit old now, but I just love that guy. You read his story, he had, he had it all. I mean, brilliant and funny and successful. But at the end, as, as his life displays or his death displays, he, he didn't have life. Looking for something, he just didn't have it. Or, 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 or Philip Hoffman, the guy who's in, uh, in a number of movies, but um, more recently in the whole Hunger Games movie. And just, again, he had it all, brilliant, gifted. You'd think a person like that would have life, but in fact, the story ends in his life showing that he really didn't have life. That, that's, the, that's the story of our world. Listen, G Jesus, Jesus says right here, I am. I'm life. You find it in me. I'm the vine. I'm the true vine. I, real life, satisfying life, eternal life, a forgiven life, a meaningful life, a significant life. It's, it's found in me. It's the source. Well, that's, that's, that's what he's declaring for us here, and I, I hope everybody here believes that. But he goes on to talk about the goal for us as believers, as people who know and trust in Jesus. And the goal is uh, fruitfulness. You, you read it. And not just fruitfulness, but much fruit. You kind of heard it all the way through as we read. Now, verse 2. Um, God's design for us being connected to this life called Jesus, um, the vine, is to bear much, more fruit, verse 2. Or much fruit, verse 5. Um, or verse 8. 
Might as well read it um, because it, it has a good word in it called truth. Um, by this, my Father is glorified. That's we glorify God when we bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciple. Part of the proof that we're actually really connected to Jesus and we really are his disciples and we really believe is that much fruit comes from our lives. Now, Jesus is the source, but amazingly enough, he's saying that part of the multiplication process of life and love and redemption and forgiveness and all of that stuff comes through us as branches. That's, we're, we're part of the means. And the goal is, is, is fruitfulness. And if you paid attention to what we read, you'd realize that that's, that fruitfulness is a necessity. It's, it's not an option. In fact, he goes on to declare, and this is kind of a, kind of a warning for every one of us, including me is that if there is no fruit, then he says the father uh, takes the branch away and the branch is delivered, withered into the fire. That implies destruction. Fruitless Christian life is really not Christian life. It's fake Christian life. So he's saying fruitfulness is absolute necessity. It is the goal um, to produce fruit in us and through us. That new life taking root um, so that it spills over in your neighborhood, in your family, and in your marriage, and, and into our city. And that's what it's meant to be. Um, we're meant to be those branches to bear much fruit. But that begs a really important question. What exactly is the fruit? Is it uh, the fruits of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, kindness, patience? Is it fruit that's produced by using our spiritual gifts of preaching and teaching and leadership and serving and mercy and so forth? Is it fruit as in making disciples and telling other people about Jesus and seeing them come to faith? What exactly is the fruit? And in one sense, you could say all of the above. But let me come at it from a slightly different angle um, in terms of just the logic of vine branch fruit. Because it, it just, I think, gives it a little different traction than just going through a list of joy, love, and peace, and all that stuff. One of the things that arises from kind of the logic of vine branch fruit is this. That Christian fruitfulness must be like organically consistent between the vine and the fruit. You're not going to have a grapevine producing kumquats or plums, pears, toadstools, whatever. It's not going to happen. Because there's a consistency in nature between the character and nature of the, of the root or the vine and the fruit it produces. Therefore, if we understand who Christ is by nature, then we can see or determine what real fruit is because we see his nature alive in us. It produces something like him. Something that is distinctively Christ-like because it's his life in us growing fruit that's organically consistent with who he is. So a couple examples of, of fruits that he does list in here. Um, he lists obedience as a fruit of, of being connected to Jesus. Obedience, the surrendered life to, to God. That's one. Another is sacrificial love, which is why I continued reading into verse 12 and 13. That he's the one who gave his life for us. That, that gives us a, a flavor of who Christ is. And when you see a Christian who's willing to take one for the team, you realize that is a Christ-like fruit. Another one is joy. He says that your joy may be full. That's another fruit of being connected to Christ. That's, those are just like the flavors of the vine being reproduced in the fruit. 
organically consistent. If you find a person who is, um, let's just say, doesn't persevere in love. And one of the marks of Christ is he persevered in love. Love never fails. It hopes all things, believes all things. And if anybody never failed in loving his people, it was Christ. So when you see love give out in a person, you realize that is not a fruit of Christ. Love that gives up is not a fruit of Christ. Because there has to be organic consistency between the fruit and the vine. Which leads to another observation, again, drawn from the analogy itself. And that is, um, that fruit, Christian fruitfulness, is holistic in scope. Now this part is probably a little bit closer to convicting a lot of us. Holistic, all the parts integrated into the whole, uh, complete and comprehensive. And by that I mean when, when, a, when, a, when, a, when a Christian is living a life that expresses fruit, both in heart and action and word and so forth, it is going to permeate all of life. It's not just going to, it's not just going to fruit at home, but not at work. It's not going to just fruit at church and not at home. That's important. If, 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 if it's organically consistent, then it's going to be holistically demonstrated. Now, how many of us have known the stories of Christian people, and perhaps some of us have lived this? One way at church, another way at home. Not a holistic fruit. One way in the workplace, greedy, cusses like a sailor, but, you know, in terms of at home, looks like a Sunday school person. That's not holistic. If you're fun and nice and kind with your friends, but you get home and you're nasty and you're verbally abusive, that's not the fruit of Christian love because what that means is love is conditioned upon personality and likability. That's not Christian love. It's not a fruit. By contrast, if you're, if you're a loving person at home, but you get into the, the workplace and you're, 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 you're harsh and not gentle and you exhibit a a strong sense of pride, well, again, it's not holistic, and that means that you're acting in some way, shape, or form conditioned upon your environment, not on the vine, Christ. So I was just, you know, that makes us all kind of stop and go, wow, do I, do I live differently? L- listen, um, if you, Christian fruitfulness should be like this. Wherever you go and see a Christian person, whether at home or at church or, or at the workplace, w- when you bite into their lives... You taste the same thing. Taste Jesus at work, Jesus at school, Jesus in church, Jesus at home in growing quantities. That's when holistic. And one final thing that he brings up in terms of the goal here, and this is, uh, I want to say this tenderly in light of our, our more recent um, history of people losing or grieving loss of things. But that Christian fruitfulness, Jesus tells us, is multiplied often through subtraction. That is pruning. Right? There's that little piece that's like, that says that the branches that bear fruit, the Father actually prunes so that it will bear more fruit. Now, we can figure that out in terms of horticulture or your apple tree or whatever. You, you know that if you prune it, you're probably going to get more fruit as a result. 
And Jesus is saying the same principle applies to life, is that God will subtract things from you. But it's not an accident. And the payoff at the end will far exceed the loss, is what he's saying. At times, it's a hard principle to believe, especially when our eyes are absorbed and hearts are absorbed in pain of loss and grief. And it's a good thing to grieve, but to recognize in the middle of grief that, you know what? What God subtracted in my life is going to pay off in the end. Um, The multiplication that comes from subtraction will exceed. And just to keep that in mind, that if you're one of those people who God has subtracted things from, a loved one, uh, a job, finances, recognize that he is at work in you. He's at work in me. And if you haven't had something subtracted from your life, you will have something subtracted from your life. And to keep that in your head. That's the goal. We're supposed to be fruitful people. Not just a little bit, but much fruit, he says. Much fruit. And God's in the process of doing that through subtraction. And then he concludes with, not concludes, I'm going to conclude with the means. Like, how, how does this fruit happen? Really? And that is the word abiding. It's all the way through. Verse 4, abide in me, and I, implied, abide in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. There's, there's no fruitfulness unless there's this abiding thing. It is the, the means to fruitfulness. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, and he continues on. Verse 7 brings it up again. If you abide in me and my words abide in you. Verse 9, abide in my love. This is the word abide, to adhere to, to fully cling to, to stay with. And the tense in the original, that is the verb tense in the original, implies a continued persistent action. It's not just occasional. It's something you've got to consistently and persistently hold on to or adhere to. It's like, abide in me, abide in me, stay connected to me. And I'll tell you what, one of the most, um, how do we say this? Um, Well, this was huge for me. Because I always placed emphasis in my thinking and reading on the fruitfulness. Now, granted, it is the goal of God to bear fruit in our life, to multiply and, and expand this life and love and goodness and redemption to the world through us. But I never really stopped to recognize that the only command in this section, the only thing that he actually implores us to do, the only imperative is to abide. In other words, when you make that correction, we spend a lot of time pursuing fruit. I'm going to make fruit. (laughs) Fruit salad. I'm just... I'm going to make stuff happen in my life. I'm going to be a better dad. I'm going to be a better husband. I'm going to be more loving, more gentle, more patient. And I'm going to try, 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 try to be more fruitful. And the more you pursue the fruit, in my experience, the more you fail. And the more you find yourself depressed and feeling defeated. Well, he didn't tell us to bear fruit in this passage. He told us to abide in this passage. You cling to me. (laughs) You cling to me. And me is the source of life, the source of love, the source of grace, the source of redemption. I'm the one who then flows through you as you stay connected to me. That, that was revolutionary to me. It's freeing and it works. But again, question, what does it mean to abide then? I mean, practically speaking. Let me offer several 
kind of breakdown points of what abiding, I believe, means in this text. One is just simply um, taken from the word abide itself and the logic of the vine and the branch. It means a simple, humble, continual dependence upon Christ for strength and grace. Most of us, unless we're really depending upon Christ, most of us like to operate based upon our own fortitude, our own strength to persevere, our own intellectual ability to figure things out, our, our own sense of confidence that we can fix things. That's why we as husbands like to try and fix our wives because we think somehow we have the capacity to fix our wives only to find out we don't have the capacity to fix our wives. Can't even fix ourselves. A continual dependence upon Christ. And you know, what, what, is it, what, what, what does that look like? Was, listen, God brings us to places all the time where we realize we just we, we can't do it. And he does that on purpose to show us that we can't do it. So when, you, when, you, when you're just, you're completely frustrated because your children are not acting or walking in the way that they should. Are you getting angry and frustrated because you can't do it? Or are you moment by moment saying, all right, Lord, this is hard, but I can only do this as I rely humbly upon your grace. And give me the will, give me the patience, give me the heart, give me the wisdom, and I will operate in dependence upon you. Or a difficult marriage, same thing. So how do you not give out? How do you not persevere? Or how do you persevere and not give out? It's like each day, depending, all right, Lord, I want to exhibit the love that does not fail, which you have. So how am I going to live this love? Or day by day, continual abiding in his strength. Simply continual dependence upon Christ. Often expressed in a continual prayer life. Two, from the text itself, notice he says continual, um, well, he says, rest of verse seven, and my words abide in you. The words of Jesus abiding, that is taking center place, dwelling in, or being internalized in the hearts of his people. His word, his teaching, teachings like this. Teachings which would also include his work of death and resurrection on a cross and what it did for us. Including himself. He is the word made flesh. Like the internalization of the word of Christ. In a way that forms and transforms and reforms your heart. We are an information society that can get anything at the drop of a hat by either Googling it or looking it up on Wikipedia. So we have capacity to, to understand or take in lots of information, but very little ability to internalize that information. It is the internalization of the scriptures of the gospel and allowing it to penetrate and to change. In, in the words of, I think it was... Uh, uh, Dr. Hendricks that said this, he says, the, the great priority is not to master the word, it's to be mastered by it. That the great priority is not to possess the word, but to be possessed by it. It's always been the case for God's people, like it or not. As they've internalized the gospel, internalized the scripture, they've experienced the power of God into salvation. Where there is no intaking and internalization of the gospel itself, the word of Christ... There's not going to be much fruit. 
little buds, you know, that, that never fully deform into fruit that replicates itself. There has to be. That's part of why we preach on Sunday morning, but this isn't enough, just Sunday morning. Is the word, taking in the word, the scripture and the gospel and asking the spirit to internalize it and set it on fire in the soul. And then the third thing I think it means in terms of abiding is to abide, he says, abide in my love. Abide in my love. Stay there continually. Refresh your heart and soul in my love for you. Listen, Christian, one of the most depleting things I know this by experience as well as from the scripture. The drain spiritual energy from us is when we lose confidence that God loves us. When we lose confidence that God loves us, we lose the energy to actually, and the motive and the drive to actually produce fruit. But where there's a refreshment of God's love in our lives, there is this re-motivation, this reformation, this movement, this drive to actually bear fruit. That's why he says, abide in, in my love. Abide in my love. Because we so easily, um, in our limited and often fractured perspective, we oftentimes create disproportion in our understanding of God's love. Um, because we know if we, t- if we really face it, we're flawed and, and, and people, and we constantly question our worth. And we question our worth in light of God's love like standing in front of a carnival mirror, right? The ones that are kind of shaped like this. And you look at it, and it gives you a warped sense of reality. Your butt is huge and your head is small. We often have a warped sense of reality. Our sin is big and God's love is small. And so then we lose confidence. And then we have to come back to the fact, which says, abide in my love. Remember, and this is where the word and love come together, to be reminded, like in Psalm, uh, Psalm 103, that as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. That's massive. Or as far as the east is from the west, and they never come together in that particular logic, so far as he removed his, uh, your iniquity from you. Or the best place to come to the cross itself. If you doubt that God can love you as a sinner or as someone who is unworthy, we well, have to take a look at the cross where love conquered sin. That tells us that love is greater than sin. Otherwise, it wouldn't have been conquered. We come there and go, wow, his love is big and it conquers my sin. And then the juices start to flow again. Life starts to flow in your heart and you find courage and you find strength and Fruit begins to abound in your life because you're abiding in his love. So I, I, as a person, not as a pastor, but as a Christian person, I want to abound in fruit in my life. And I pray if you're here and you, you, you're a follower of Jesus, that that's your desire to you. That by the time you've left this planet and gone to be with him, you will know that God used me to multiply life, love, goodness, redemption in this world, showing the beauties of Christ. And ultimately that's going to happen when we learn what it means to truly be deeply rooted in abiding relationship with Jesus. Don't concentrate, uh, stupid, but to use another analogy, hose. We focus on the exit point and go, just gush harder. That's stupid. 
I don't care how long you hold the exit point of a hose, you're not going to make it go any faster. You go back to the beginning where it intersects into that faucet. That's where the water flows. So this, this morning, just are you connected? Is there something keeping you from full connection to Christ? Sin, distraction, um, idolatry, from saying, Jesus, I, I, I want you and you alone. I want to trust in you and you alone. I want your life-giving spirit to pour out and through me. Make that your prayer this morning. Because we, we get to come to the table, the Lord's Supper, which is a representation both of word and love. As we take the bread and the cup, which is a symbol of his dead body and his blood that was poured out for us, the ultimate act of love conquering sin, then we're reminded both of the word and of the conquering power and, and depth of his love. And just ask the Lord, hey, through this, will you once again help me to abide in your love and let your word um, be internalized into my heart as I take these elements and worship you. Let that be your prayer this morning, all right? I just let the Lord turn on the faucet here and, uh, and bear fruit in our lives. If you're new with us, I know we have new people here this morning. If you're a follower of Jesus and you have bowed your knee in faith and said, I believe, then you're welcome to come to this table. Um, and partake. Uh, we will have three servers, and um, they will tear the bread and hand it to you, and then you can take it either at your seat or with your family or by yourself. It's kind of an open-ended, fluid time of, of worshiping the Lord through, this, uh, through this, this table. As I pray, if I could have those who are going to serve come forward, and, um, and if you want to be prayed for, you just have something that's big, um, then we will have people from this corner to this corner. They're just here to pray for you. They'll keep it confidential. They just want to pray for you. So let's worship the Lord in, in bread and in cup. Father, we thank you for your kindness. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your love that has conquered our sin. May we know, Lord, that your love is offered to us freely. Before we were ever saved, you loved us. While we were still dead in our trespasses and sins, while we were still enemies of yours, your love sought us out. And now we simply say, yes, Lord, yes, 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 we accept your love in Christ's name.